Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. This development occurred, uh, which is really interesting to me because it's it represents sort of the line between commercial gaming and educational gaming. Uh, Finnish developer Rovio, maker of Angry Birds, just slashed 213 jobs. Included in that cut was their fledgling, as described by Ed Surge, education business, which was launched in early 2014 under the name Fun Learning. Oh. Because because learning's obviously not fun by itself, right, right Norton? I'm glad they didn't do, like, flirning. <laughs> that would have been even more unfortunate. Right. Yeah. They basically, they've, they've been struggling as an organization as it was already. Uh, they were struggling to kind of create a hit on the level of Angry Birds. They were essentially milking that franchise, trying to make theme parks and action figures and licensed television shows, essentially trying to turn Angry Birds into a Disney-like ecosystem of curios. Sure. So it's interesting to me that they essentially gave up on the education market. It, it's something that happens, I think, more often than not um, to a commercial business that's trying to turn towards the education market to do to, to kind of capitalize on that because the education market is very strange it's not at all like commercial gaming it's not at all like entertainment norton can you think of some other examples um outside of rovio where there was a commercial gaming entity that tried to kind of dive into this space there have been a couple but i mean if you name just about any large publisher on the gaming side likely at some point they've experimented with and done work inside education and of course then you know they should there are notable examples in the other direction like the success of minecraft yeah. uh, dot edu right like will they be able to take a commercial game space and say you know is there a way to migrate this experience to make it more workable in schools and actually finding a lot of success but yeah there's been a lot of attempts to take a commercial game approach and apply it to the education market in the theory that you know They've sorted out the tricks of engagement and user experience, so why not tilt those towards schools where things like engagement and user experience is a you know more is usually considered pretty barren wasteland. Right. Um, yeah. So I have to admit I don't know much about Rovio's initiative. I don't know whether it was just Angry Birds with math problems, or or maybe they were working on some really cool prototype things that just got tragically cut off before their time. It's always interesting for us at Filament to see sort of the rise and fall of different initiatives that go to look to education and educational space to as a, as a new market to succeed, especially from the commercial gaming to education. You know, we're also very well acquainted with a lot of educational organizations that are looking to move into gaming, right? And we're very commonly brought on as a bridge to do that for for lots of projects. Lots of times we'll work with educational organizations that say, we see the potential of gaming in, in schools, but we need an organization to help us understand what's good about games and how to make games that can meet our goals. It's very rare, if ever, I think, if we've ever had a commercial gaming company come to us and say, we need to understand 
the intricacies of the educational market or understand the philosophy or pedagogy models that integrate with gaming to succeed. Usually, usually I think there's some element of hubris being like, we've done the hard thing. We made a thing that's a commercial game. So the school part, that meeting the needs of education is going to be trivial. Right. I think by and large, you'll see that games are made by fairly clever people. Yep. It's a field that's filled with lots of creative entrepreneurial people who are looking to yeah, work on something that's both technical and creative. So you've got a lot of pretty self-assured, confident people who are pretty clever. So I would say culturally, right, you've got a fairly dismissive attitude towards education. Lots of people in gaming, I think, found education either an inconvenient roadblock in the way of them to make things or an outright obstacle that they disdained. So I think there's a lot of effort that goes into a commercial gaming approach into games that winds up being not very... Not even necessarily disrespectful. It's not even about disrespect, but not just not a lot of listening and focusing on the actual needs of that market as it's as a as a real market of real people who have real needs. And I, I think that's often sort of the rocks that things get dashed on. Right? Is that they think that the same approaches to focusing on engagement, user experience, etc., are the same problems that face this market. Right. And they're not. Looking at an example like Rovio and their fun learning uh, initiative, I mm-hmm. guess, it was, I think, well-founded. I mean, when I look at the kinds of things they're talking about in in their messaging for fun learning, they're talking about 21st century skills. They're talking about creating a space for flow, which mm-hmm. is a very progressive idea in education. It's this idea that you have to kind of get the learner into this, this optimal mental state where they're flowing in that that helps them to engage with the content more. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about engagement. It, the messaging to me is on point. I think um, where Rovio stumbled probably is that they had all of these existential crises going on outside of their education right. initiative. They're mm-hmm. struggling to maintain what is no doubt a massive organization. If they're slice or they're slashing 213 jobs, right, and that's a quarter of their company. That's a big company mm-hmm. that's all been brought on to scale up Angry Birds. But now that demand is softening for Angry Birds, because obviously it's it's a finite thing. There's not a tremendous amount of uh, different directions you can take the core mechanic of that game. Mm-hmm. They're struggling to find another way to keep themselves funded, and it would appear that because education is such a difficult market that it was probably a fairly easy call for them to make strategically and say, like, well, we have limited resources, and education is a resource-intensive market to approach, mm-hmm. and so they you know, boiled their company back down to its to its core. Mm-hmm. I think I'd, I'd like to talk about a little bit of the realities that kind of face companies that they just don't anticipate when they're in the education market. Sure. Um, one is that, you know, particularly when you're looking at K-12, you have a very slow buying cycle hmm. to the point where it's it's 
longer than one year. It's it's a several year cycle. You can get the attention in year one and some of the early buying in year two and then full adoption in year three is how it often works because of the bureaucratic organizations that you're working with and the institutional level organizations where they move slowly. It's politically fraught because Every time there's an administration change or a change in state representative or the the political tilt of, of your state or county changes, that changes the amount of budget your school has. And suddenly these vendors who are trying to get into school markets are finding that unlike the commercial space where these these organizations can fund and operate independent of the political realities surrounding them, mm-hmm. for the most part... Uh, the school market is far more entrenched with political the political waves basically that you have to kind of navigate mm-hmm. additionally you need uh infrastructure you need a sales team and you need sales reps who are intimately familiar with the K12 space who can go into those districts and go into those schools and actually build a relationship because so much of K12 buying and educational buying is relationship based and so that's another thing that so, you know, for instance, McGraw-Hill has 200 to 500 sales reps mm-hmm. for their curriculum and their their upcoming Inspire Science games. That's a massive, That's massive a of legion yeah. of salespeople. Yeah. Um, this is the kind of thing that commercial companies do not anticipate when they're approaching the education market, is that it's it's so based on relationship building that you need an army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and you also need to kind of use the channel. So the existing reseller and distribution channel that K-12 is dependent on, again, going back to this idea of being relationship-based, it's you go to f- people like SHI or CDW because they have such close and such turnkey relationships with these K-12 districts. So it's like you can give them your product and they will just, because of the existing channel of sales that they've already got, will push them straight into the schools and it's much lower effort for you. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of multiple ways that the education market is extremely quirky when compared to pretty much anything else. I mean, it's much closer to like a public buying. Now, I think Minecraft, uh, which you brought up earlier, is a really interesting example because it obviously it, it's sort of a unicorn in terms of how it has been adopted and how it is very prominent in schools. And I think it's because there, it's sort of a confluence of of different factors, um, one of which is this kind of this emphasis on project-based learning and open-ended learning. Mm-hmm. Minecraft obviously lends, its, lends itself very well to that. Mm-hmm. So like with a sandbox, you know, for instance, that, that's really applicable to these, these hot trends in education about critical thinking, 21st century skills, collaboration. Mm-hmm. So we had a teacher fellow, uh, Marion Malmstrom, with us uh, in the studio over the summer, and she heavily uses Minecraft in her own curriculum. You can learn more about that at her website, noclue.com. That's K-N-O-W-Clue.com. And this is where she talks about the ways that she kind of had her students dive in and make their own game out of Minecraft, basically, and it it was very open-ended. I thought that was fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to be said for giving students a space where they get to define and own mastery, right? And Minecraft is a great game just for a space where you get to decide what to do and how you're going to be great at it. Right. And so once you sort of laid out that context of being like, this is a space to create and know things and build and collaborate, you know, you've got this just awesome contextual 
hub that you can start connecting all sorts of other experiences, other materials, other curriculum back to that experience over and over. And then students are drawing from a, a spot where they had agency and impact and power. And that's sort of the core they can draw from. And that's really, really pretty awesome. I think so often this, like the first barrier that someone has when they're in a classroom trying to learn something is they don't see any way that it connects to them in, at all. Right. And they have no connection to it in a way that they find empowering or useful. They're like, why am I learning this? Or I'm never good at this kind of thing. Yeah. I'm just being forced to do something I hate that I'm bad at. Well, it's this idea of agency, right? right? It's like basically giving them that that ability to take control. And, of course, that's core to the idea of personalized learning is that it's it's very much an individualized experience. Mm-hmm. One particularly interesting thing I found uh, about her her structure, Marianne's structure, was she had kind of given the kids just carte blanche to do what they want in the game. And what they ended up making was MIT, which was the Minecraft Institute of Technology. <laughs> and the way they describe it is a premium school for Minecrafters where they teach other students how to play Minecraft. So... It's sort of like this meta level, like they're teaching about teaching of the game Mm -hmm. that they're using to learn. Conceptually complex and rich, I think, but they teach, you know, building, brewing, horse riding, crafting, potions, alchemy, like all that stuff that has lately been added to Minecraft because the game just continues to expand. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was really cool that they essentially they built a school they had dedicated discrete classrooms for each subject area and then these kids would become the instructors as they're teaching their stu- their fellow classmates how to play this game and how to become good at this game mm-hmm. you know i think uh, one thing that's interesting maybe to to drift back to rovio a little bit yeah. you know it's you talked a little bit about the the success of the rovio angry birds franchise mm-hmm. i'm constantly surprised by what rises and falls, especially in the mobile space, right? So now we, we've just seen Activision picking up King for almost $6 billion, and the mobile market continues to offend my old man's sensibilities of what good games should be, but <laughs> it continues to move along and make giant piles of dollars. Right. And the more elaborate, sophisticated markets like PC gaming, et cetera, you know, are, are you know, especially PC sort of behind the veil of valve like it's really it's still hard to really peg that market size other than calculated projections but you know it's it's a really interesting time to sort of talk about how to succeed in games at all mm. you know like rovio wanted to make angry birds yeah the next disney but you know it's not to be mean but it's more like maybe it's kind of hitting at the cabbage patch kid level of cultural saturation you know a, a, a very intense brief focus and then you know, likely fading. Right. And we've also seen Zynga's rise and fall inside Facebook very briefly. Yep. I think certainly Rovio, Rovio to their credit, I mean, Angry Birds is a, is a great game. So it's, it's a fun game to play. Mm-hmm. And the art and production values are very high. It's very easy to to love playing that game. But I think it must. it just must be so easy to be like, aha, that's lightning in a bottle. We made Angry Birds once. Right. And sure, and certainly they add, you know, it's not like that's, 
there were very successful derivations of that project. You know, like there was the Angry Bird Star Wars that was very well received. Yep. And, you know, there's lots of they, – they have moved it into a franchise size, but it's just it's such a fickle market, mm-hmm. you know. I've been playing a lot of mobile games in the last couple of weeks, which I think has been like – slowly building some kind of like low-grade depression for me like it's <laughs> <laughs> this weekend i was like laying in bed playing some terrible connecting game and i was just like i don't want i don't want to go to work anymore i don't want to i don't want to go anywhere do anything just in a, a pile of dirty laundry and mobile devices yeah basically on yeah the ground. It, you know it just kind of sapped my spirit but you know it's <laughs> but if you look at like sort of what's new and what's every day right you're yeah. going to see all of these games. In each game, you can more or less be like, this represents the dream probably of like somewhere between 5 to 50 people who just put their heart into making this thing real, right? Right. And those just shoot by the market every day. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, all, all of these games. And some of them, that's the part that really freaks me out. Some of these games are good. Yeah. It's not even like, oh, well, you know, you make a great game, get it into mobile. Right. And you'll, you'll make it. Nope. So nope. not, not at all a meritocracy. Out not there. at all. And, you know, like, I think, uh, you know, I think everyone stopped and paused when uh, Flappy Bird exploded. Mm-hmm. And in that designer was like, I am filled with shame. Right. This game is not a good game. I never, I do not want this to be what I'm associated with. Yep. I'm frankly terrified at the success of my own not good thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So the, the market is... So impossibly fickle. Uh, it, it's so hard to really say, how do you succeed? Do you think that has something to do with just the explosion of people who could be considered gamers because of the you know, commensurate explosion of mobile device adoption you've got between you know, 2010 and 2013, billions of smartphones being pushed out into the consumer space, mm-hmm. and you have so many more people now accessing app stores do you think that could be part of the sort of arbitrary nature of what rises to the top? Yeah, it really could be. You know, I I always sort of maintain that when Zynga exploded and got huge, I felt like, I mean, I have a very deep hatred for what Zynga has made and mm-hmm. what they did to gaming. So <laughs> let me add that as a disclaimer. But, you know, I think Zynga really was able to take, you know, some of like the base level things of what games can do, like the progression structures and you know a b tested ultimately derived you know reward user experience things the right sparkles at the right time the right access to the right upgrade at the right time and they were basically able to like drop that like influenza on like a on an island population that had never been exposed right you had this whole group of people who were not gamers who did not who generally didn't know how good gaming had gotten, right? Right. And they were able to use, like, the most brute force of game-based tools. Mm-hmm. None of the ones that actually involve play. Just all the things that are about user feedback maximization. And the intensely obnoxious sharing mechanisms and all that. Right, yeah. right. So they just had every component. When you talk about viral, like, they, you know, they used those and it just spread like wildfire. I mean, that's the thing, is that most Zynga games rewarded you via metrics to let you play them less. Right. right? And you're like, hey, you don't have to click on the oven again. You got a better oven that you click on less. Isn't that great? <laughs> you know, oh, hey, you know, this crop will grow uh, automatically. You don't have to water it as often. Right. You know, like, so the fact that the games are generally engineered in such a way that the reward was that you didn't have to look at them as often, I think is a pretty telling sign. Right. <laughs> something was rotten in Denmark. 
So yeah, I think there are a lot of users who aren't necessarily tuned into like the aspects of play and thought, experimentation, a lot of the things that people look for in their deeper play experiences. And Flappy Bird was remarkably successful because the button to like acknowledge that you died was the same as the button that started it again. Right. And you're like tap. Oh, I'm going again. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, it's just things like that. People are like, I guess I'm. I guess I enjoy playing this. <laughs> I'm still going. Yeah. Instead uh, of instead of being compelled for that one more turn it's just that you're basically confronted with the one more turn and right. it's just happening yeah and then you have to like openly acknowledge like well no i am quitting right <laughs> even while whilst flapping yeah right and so that's yeah so so there's like engagement engagement tricks have done a gone far away to saturate what people will get out of games and yeah i think maybe you're right right i mean i feel like that's like a big part of the crazy looking churn of mobile. And yeah. especially when you like you take my or many other gamers sort of fuddy duddy approach of like what is important about play. Right. Uh, and you're like, why can't I apply what I believe is important about play to what is successful in mobile? It's very frustrating. Right? It's yeah. A, yeah. It's a, you know, to me it's really interesting because it's like you have this core faithful subculture of people who identify as gamers who are incredibly sophisticated about how they view games and how they analyze them and unpack them and think about mechanics. And then you have the masses, which I think have been, again, it's it's similar to your analogy with, uh, you know, the island of people who have never been exposed to this. That's That to me was like, that's Facebook. That's what Zynga had. Mm-hmm. And of course, Similarly, there are the user bases of Android and iOS who are, mm. they're, they're also that island. They're different islands, but they're the same thing. It's like these, they're now, they're now equipped with a device or a platform that enables them to waste more time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, they, that's how they view games as like a way to fill time mm-hmm. and, and just as a distraction to use within these these kind of platform spaces. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's. I think there is something to that that it could be influencing the seemingly random behavior of of what what becomes huge. Even bad movies are pretty good these days. That's true. Right? Like, yep. You know, like, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just self-filtering, but I feel like, you know, generally the level of what is considered a bad movie now these days is certainly, I think, is better than what would be considered a bad game. I would agree with that. And as consumers get involved with the media, they just naturally start moving in a direction to demand a meta level of sophistication, yes. right? You know, I think that's maybe, and there are now big new groups of gamers who are not demanding any levels of sophistication because they're kids in a candy store. Yes. Ah, candy crush store even. <laughs> huh? <laughs> eh? I see yeah. what you did there. Yeah, I, I didn't until I did it. That's good. Um, so, so maybe it's just a matter of the market maturing. Um, I, I do think that mobile has a challenge in that both the time constraint of how long one is willing to spend on a mobile game yep. and then also the level of input right anything past a swipe or a poke is tough to do in a mobile space mm-hmm. so you have a very limited amount of types of inputs 
um, and you also have a very limited window of time. So those are also very natural pressures against sophistication. So maybe mobile will always be pushing on like what is the most meaningful experience you can have on this device. Yeah. I think there's been some success and at least, and I'm for this, like games that are like, well, maybe we aren't going to let make a space where you can be brilliant, but we can at least have, let you have a beautiful experience or an aesthetic experience. And we can also make games that make you at least feel very clever. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting thing to me. So there's definitely a lot of games that are mobile that are gorgeous. And I like to see that. I like to see that at least, you know, they're like, let's hammer on having a wonderful aesthetic experience inside a game. Right. Even if we're not going to push the play space somewhere new uh, or particularly deep. At least at least they're hitting on, you know, I like to say that, you know, games are made out of a whole bunch of different kinds of art, right? They're just like, they're dripping with art all over the place. There's There's images and animation and sound and interaction. So there's all these different crafted pieces of uh, artistic experience for you to consume and so i think we've seen a new crop of games like you know things like monument valley or i just really played i just really loved this lumino city as an adventure puzzle game and those I, are actually wonderful puzzles too so maybe that's even a bad example because well, it's kind of good one, that one's through. really cool and i i want that one but i don't have ios 9 yet oh yeah and i need well. to upgrade but yeah they, that was like that was where they kind of made a handcrafted like environment mm-hmm. and characters, mm-hmm. right? And then photograph that and brought it into the game world as art. Yep. And I, you know, I almost, I'm not sad I brought it up because it's a wonderful game. And I think everyone should try it, but mm-hmm. I do have a slight regret because it, it sounds like I'm implying that the play in that is not good. Um, mm-hmm. And it actually, it's a very traditional adventure puzzle game. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. everywhere you wander in that game as a different type of puzzle to play. So different types of logic or spatial reasoning puzzles and, it's a, a very traditional throwback adventure game. Like the King's Quest series or what have you? Or? Oh, I think way better. Well, I mean, you know, King's Quest wound up being like, you know, like tape the tape the rabbit to your head to get past the troll because for yes. some reason the troll will think that you're the princess. With, right. You know, like not that kind of thing. More like uh, you have to finish the circuit board. Okay. And then over here you have to uncover the way to dig out all these potatoes. Right. And like, so there's like grid problems, quadrant problems, math problems sequencing problems but it's like more intuitive than sort of the randomness of like what the king's quest series would yeah, have you do okay. yeah they're all like you know there's one very lovely puzzle where it's very simple you were given a guitar and you were told to memorize a sequence of guitar passages mm-hmm. i wrote them down it's kind of cheating but uh <laughs> that was it basically it was just a really beautiful little experience you're playing guitar with this old man to make his wife happy because it was their anniversary song and he, he was too old to play it by himself. Okay. That was very nice, right? And, and, you know, so just these very nice interactions that involve different levels of thinking, strategy, but always aesthetic, always a wonderful, beautiful experience. Yeah, I'd love to see more of that. I mean, my only regret is I played it in a sitting and I was like, oh, darn it, I ran out of that. Right. It was really good. Thanks for listening to the Film and Games Podcast. If you'd like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and well-informed, accurate observations about sports and such, subscribe today on Stitcher or iTunes.